Hello, this is John Hendren, your host for BotCast, episode number nine. This episode's feature is box Brandenburg Concerto number no. five, or BWV one thousand fifty, and we just listened to sort of a modern, jazzy interpretation of that. That actually comes off an album by the Jacques Lucier Trio. Uh, they record for Teldec Jazz as the label, and they put together a number of years ago a uh, Playbach album. Actually, it was quite a few years ago, and. More recently, they've started to record those uh, play Bach pieces again and have expanded their repertoire. Uh, Jacques Lussier, I believe, uh, just reached a milestone age. He's a older gentleman, and he's the pianist, and he's been backed up by a number of different bassists and uh, drummers over the years. And if you kind of like the flavor of that, I actually do like their Bach interpretations. And they've recorded the Goldbergs, they've recorded the Brandenburg Concertos, they've recorded uh, the Play Bach albums, which are kind of um, a hodgepodge of different Bach pieces. And number five has a kind of catchy phrase to it. You may have re- actually recognize it if you've not are, if you're not already familiar with the Brandenburg Concertos. Um, it's scored for, as you've kind of figured out as we've exploring all the Brandenburg concertos, we're on five now. Bach is doing different things in each one. And this one, he did a little bit of what he did number four, and that is to write out music so technically difficult to play. Um, in this context, it's for the harpsichord. Now, the harpsichord we've been listening in Baroque music is sort of this background instrument. Um, you can think of a group like the English Concert, uh, who was formed, the group was formed in 1973 by Trevor Pinnock. Trevor Pinnock was a harpsichordist. He was the leader. He was the one playing the foundation material, adding chords with his right hand, playing the bass lines on the left. And it kind of made sense uh, because we knew that Bach played this role, at least in some of the performing he did, sort of as the leader of an ensemble keeping everybody together on the keyboard with this harpsichord. And then what happens? He decides that the harpsichord should take a lead role in the context of an orchestra. And so that's what really sets Brandenburg Concerto Number 5 apart for one reason, is because it's often pointed to being perhaps the world's first piano concerto. Although that's not really true because it's not the only soloist. In terms of the concerto, uh, we have the concertino in a concerto grosso. And the concertino, again, is that small group of instrumentalists who are given the solo parts. And in Brandenburg number 5, those parts are given to a violin, flute, and the harpsichord. What makes this one unique, however, is that Bach writes out a cadenza. Now, if you think back to the history of the Brandenburgs that I've shared in some of the other episodes, the manuscript was found. It had been sent to a guy named the Margrave of Brandenburg. We think it was a job application by Bach to be noticed. And Bach really wasn't 
kind of holding back at all. He wasn't making a, uh, a performer's edition of this music. Uh, in fact, I'd have to go back and check, but I don't think he sent the parts. I think he sent the score. In other words, he was, he was sending something that was showing, this, look what I can do. And there just happens, which is unique for us as uh, historians, I guess, it so happens that there was another version of this left behind that we know of. Uh, it's in the catalog, I believe it was 1050A in the BWV. And that version doesn't have the cadenza. It has a very short little, short little snippet of something, and then everybody comes back. And you'll find some recordings out there where people recorded uh, both versions of uh, Brandenburg Number 5, the one with the extended virtuosic cadenza that we can only imagine is what Bach would have done in performing this piece live. And then there's the more practical version where the cadenza is not written out. And this whole idea of, of cadenzas, again, this is one of those first places we can point in the history of music that's, that's of a well-known piece, where this idea of the performer pausing in the context of a concerto and going off and doing something incredible on their own, imp improvising, basically. And what's unique for us in terms of musical history is to actually see when performers have, have actually taken the chance to write these things out. And well into the classical era with folks like Mozart and Haydn, um, they've left some examples of, of those types of things out as well. And today, performers sometimes will perform the the example, if you will, that's been left behind by a performer, and others will go and, and do their own. Or sometimes we see performers such as maybe the Beethoven Violin Concerto will record the cadenza of somebody else who's written one that's well-known and, and well-received. Um, so all those things that we think about maybe today in the context of a classical concerto, lots of it all goes back to this number five, uh, Brandenburg number five. So the performance I'm going to share with you today that I, that I really like is by the group Concerto Italiano. Um, and the harpsichordist, Mr. Alessandrini, is the, uh, of course, the soloist in this case. And just like Trevor Pinnock with the English concert, he is the leader of the ensemble and he plays in the harpsichord. And I'm going to play the same intro that you just heard in the jazzy version by Jacques Lussier and you're going to hear it now from Concerto Italiano. so cool about Bach's writing is he's doing an almost textbook. Um, if you think back to what a concerto is, it's a group, it's a piece for an orchestra. Um, and we can argue about how big the orchestra should be or how small it should be. Um, but an orchestra. And usually there's some soloists. Not always. Um, Vivaldi is famous for writing concertos that had no soloist. Uh, it was just a 
it was interchangeable with the with the uh, the word symphonia. But in this case, we do have soloists. In this case, three soloists. But concertos usually followed some kind of format, and the format that Bach has adopted is kind of the Italian format. This is a three-movement concerto, much like a lot of Vivaldi's concertos. And we do know that probably by this time Bach was familiar with Vivaldi. We know he was um, rearranging some of Vivaldi's concertos on his own, in some cases for a keyboard instrument. So Bach, being probably the most comfortable on a keyboard instrument, uh, is adapting this these forms that were popular in the time. Uh, the Italians were sort of thought of as the innovators, maybe. Um, new, new fresh ideas coming out of Italy, and Bach is now transforming them for his world. And so he, he adopts kind of the format, which starts out with this ray piano uh, structure. And what this means is a ray piano is, is a recurring uh, theme or, um, you know, recurring theme. That's what it is. And it's the... And we're going to hear it several times throughout the concerto. And that's when everybody's playing together. Opposite that are these solo episodes. And what we just heard was the beginning of the ray piano where everybody's playing together, playing this common theme, and we get to the solo work. And as you can imagine, Bach is this contrapuntalist who's going to take the melody solo parts and toss them around the three different voices. And in this case, the voices are flute, violin, and harpsichord. So what you just heard is sign of those phrases going between uh, the flute and the violin. Let's listen to that same excerpt once again, and this time listen for that main structure, solo episode, and then I will uh, cut it off when the re-piano, when the main theme comes back with everybody in tandem. So it actually came back twice, right? Revisited in these little bridges between these solo episodes. And so far, Bach has been doing something kind of interesting. Now, I said he's going to be tossing around the themes between the three soloists. That's how it normally would work. But in this case, he's written out the whole keyboard part. So this is not a typical basso continuo line. It's written out a full right hand. And if you listen, we're listening carefully the theme never really gets past to the harpsichord part. Normally, if we look at, for instance, his um, 
sonatas for violin and harpsichord, the right hand of the harpsichord and the violin basically have equal footing, and he easily uh, tosses the lines between those two parts. In this case, the harpsichord is off doing its own thing. It's kind of an independent, unique part to it. Um, has some interesting runs going on, has sort of counter melody going on, but yet really hasn't been able to shine. And if you think about the context of this design, why don't all three musicians get a big solo cadenza? Now, if this were a, uh, a jazz group, just like the one we heard at the beginning, typically everybody in a jazz number gets an opportunity to solo, right? If we had a, a saxophone, a drummer, and a piano, uh, usually, if it's not in one piece, it's going to be in the context of the next piece or the one after that, that the drummer gets a little bit of a solo, the piano gets a little bit of a solo, the saxophone gets a little solo, and they get, each get their opportunity to shine. And a lot of people have pointed to Baroque music being not that different from jazz. So why doesn't Bach give uh, the shining moment to these other instruments? I have a feeling that, of course, Bach doesn't have the context of a modern jazz ensemble to compare it to, but I have the feeling that he's kind of holding back a little bit, that the harpsichord is doing some new stuff, and we're going to eventually get to this break point where um, they finally really get to come across in the texture and shine. And since I meant uh, mentioned texture, I think it's also important in this recording to note that I think there's a pretty natural um, balance between the instruments. I've mentioned in other uh, podcast episodes how I think folks are maybe sometimes playing a little bit with the levels that we can do in a modern recording situation, uh, putting individual mics on every instrument and kind of tailoring things so that every instrument is so easily heard when we slap on some headphones or we sit in front of some speakers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the most authentic. Uh, one of the things that I noticed, I think, for early on when I went to a, a concert hall and heard Baroque musicians playing, and, and when I say Baroque musicians, I mean in the historically informed uh, performance practice style, was, first of all, how quiet the instruments are compared to what I was normally doing on a stereo, and number two, how sometimes the balance suffered. And I'm not saying that here in this case that things are suffering, but they sound to me pretty typical of what you would expect maybe if you were in the same room with these folks. This recording does not have a lot of reverb to it. Uh, it sounds like it's done in a reasonably sized room. And when I put on headphones, it makes me feel like I'm sitting or standing there amongst the musicians, which is kind of a neat way to do the recording. So I really, beyond the strong performances in this recording, really want to do a shout out to the, the balance and the way it, it comes across. Uh, it's easy to listen to on, at least for me right now, headphones. So what I want to do is skip a little bit ahead in this first movement. The first movement is the big long one because it includes the cadenza. And we're going to see how the harpsichord sort of emerges out of the texture and gets its own uh, equal and then uh, special footing amongst the other two soloists. So right now the, the violin and flute are kind of playing in tandem against all those fast notes in the right hand, right? It's two against one.
Nice cadence. And now the harpsichord's on its own. Doesn't need anybody else. You can play the ritornello theme completely by itself. statement. Trying things out again. New idea comes. What you're going to hear now in this cadenza is Bach going between lots of different types of ideas. What to do with your two hands? Trills going up and down. Recapping some music we've already heard. Then going some new and interesting directions. So, Bach goes crazy, goes frenetic, all different chromaticisms in there, and it really takes a talented harpsichordist to pull that off in a convincing way. There are some opportunities to uh, add rubato in there, and of course, you might imagine that with a, uh, a conductor and harpsichordist like Alessandrini, uh, he gives us uh, a really good, solid performance in his reading. Brandenburg number five. I want to talk about that again, that kind of dynamic between flute, violin, and harpsichord. We basically saw that in the first movement, Bach has been playing with those three voices in a way to say they're not quite equal. Uh, another composer might have played with them more equally. Bach does that, for instance, in Brandenburg number two, where he's tossing around the theme between the trumpet, the oboe, and the violin. In this case, the harpsichord kind of has to prove itself, maybe, through this elaborate cadenza that it belongs in the party. So what happens in the second movement? The second movement, the harpsichord starts and sort of acts as the foundation, the background, to support these two soloists in a really, uh, his second movement here is really well done. It's in a minor mode, very uh, effect effective, um, just really good quality writing of melodies that are going on there and what does the harpsichord do does it get to play along as a third authentic third partner let's listen
So Bach gives bum, 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 to our flute and violin. The right hand of the harpsichord doesn't get it until they kind of stop for a while. So it's almost, well, when you guys are done, I'll try doing my own thing there. Now, Bach kind of fools us a little bit, at least if you're just listening kind of the surface, because we don't hear that melody played along with those two solo instruments in the right hand, which is you can think of as our third voice, except he kind of sneaks in the bass line. So this is what he's playing with in movement two. Flute and violin get to play the interesting stuff. The right hand only gets to play it when they're doing something else, when they're kind of playing the, the backup, backup music. And it goes back and forth, this whole movement. Except he's being sneaky and fitting that theme, using counterpoint, using it as, as a bass line now, in the left hand. What's also unique about this movement is there's the rest of the orchestra falls silent. It's just written for the three solo instruments. It's very intimate. When we come into the third movement, it's going to start with a fugue, which shouldn't be surprising. We've seen that before in Bach. Um, and finally, I think we get to see that the three performers are equal players in that that melody gets taken up by the right hand in the keyboard part. Okay, two solo instruments playing by themselves. And here comes the harpsichord. Harpsichord's a little fancier, doing some extra stuff in there, showing off a bit. The rest of the orchestra comes in. Listen to what Bach's doing with the rhythm here. It's toe tapping. So flute kind of gets a lead there. Now we're going to go to violin. Flute's playing background. Let's see if he gives it to the harpsichord. Yep. Harpsichord gives its own solo movement, just like the others. So if anything else, you see that this movement is really easy to listen to, kind of pushes itself forward with that pulse that's going on, and finally Bach seems to hand over and make a resolution of this dynamic between these three solo instruments and finally say, hey, you've earned your spot. 
And so not only should we remember uh, this concerto by Bach as being one of the first examples of a keyboard concerto, whether we call that a harpsichord or a piano, um, Bach seems to be cognizant of the role that the keyboard instrument has in the context of an orchestral style concerto and is allowing the performer to sort of tell a story through those three movements and finally become an equal player. At least that's how I see it. Um, All six of Bach's Brandenburg concertos are masterpieces, and I hope you've enjoyed um, not only seeing my perspective of what Bach's doing in this concerto amongst the three soloists in the concerto, but also get to see uh, some really strong playing by Concerto Italiano. Thank you for listening. This has been BachCast episode number nine, and I'm your host, John Hendren. For more BachCast episodes and for my reviews of all types of classical and Baroque recordings, go to my website, bieberfan.org. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G.